Thank you for joining me on today's episode, where I'll be diving into the legacy and narratives of today's guest. As I conduct more research, I fall deeper in love with the fact that more voices will be heard and legacies will be documented. I would like to ask that you consider supporting my work by visiting anchor.fm forward slash our legacy podcast and contribute what you can on the listener support page. Otherwise, feel free to share my podcast amongst your networks because I'm definitely looking for interviewees over the age of 50 years old and pretty much from anywhere in the world. The name of the guest today is Megan, who is in her 50s, an aspiring fruit breeder, disabled artist, and musician who has a few albums that she has released and is available at meganlynch.bandcamp.com. Megan is able to sing her original compositions as well as Tin Pan Alley, Rock, pop, country, blues, light opera, and various world musics. She uses a full palette of thrums, yelps, croons, yodels, growls, and ululations in order to paint the picture called for by the song. Megan has faced and overcame some difficult obstacles in her life, which eventually led her to further explore her skills to master another career. She's currently educating herself about disability practices while also learning as much as she can about other disadvantaged groups. She's also currently enrolled in college and has performed her music in the San Francisco Bay Area for more than two decades. Welcome to our Legacy Podcast, Megan. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Okay. Uh, I'm the eldest of a very large family. I was born and raised in Southern California. I've always had a lot of interests, but if I had to choose only one thing, you know, it was going to be art. Uh, that did not go over well with my family. So most of my life has been spent trying to find a day job that paid enough to put myself through art school. Uh, however, you know, I became disabled at 29 and, and that put that goal even further off, uh, I kept working for as long as I could. I finally went on uh, social security disability insurance in 2008. And uh, somewhere in between it all, uh, I was making music in my spare time. You know, I put out the album, as you mentioned, uh, in 2009. And I had to move from the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, which is really what I view as my spiritual home and where I had lived, you know, almost all my adult life back to L.A. uh, in 2010. And I decided to go back to school, uh, in this case, going to community college for the first time uh, in 2013. That's the nutshell version. Thank you so much, Megan. I was wondering, how did you come to the realization that you wanted to make major changes in your life? Uh, (laughs) Well, I think a lot of us have that kind of realization more than once in our life. It's just trying to uh, get the courage or the 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 uh, stick-to-itiveness to do it. Um, the, uh, as I mentioned, Social Security Disability Insurance, uh, I went on to in 2008. That's, uh, for short, that's SSDI. Uh, I, you pay into that while you're working. So since I stayed in the workforce as long as I could, you know, I, I definitely was eligible for it. But the amount that they pay people per month is really not enough to keep from being at risk of homelessness. So the stress of that, uh, 
plus my inability to afford the health care I need, which is not covered by Medicare, um, made me decide to go back to school to see if I could retrain in some work that was would be accommodated uh, in terms of my disability, yet still fulfilling and could support me if, you know, worst case scenario, I could only physically do it part time. Uh, it's not that I'm, you know, suddenly not disabled. I, you know, what would definitely be the better choice for me would be if I could, you know, if SSDI paid enough to take care of myself. Um, but it, it, that was just not happening. So it's really a lesser of two evils situation. By the, you know, I, I literally, when I decided to go back to community college, I literally made a list of what skills I had both soft skills and actual subject area skills. And I rated how far ahead I was on them and how much more I had to go. And my intention when I went back to school was really just to uh, get my existing kind of intermediate skills up to full and then to also explore what would be available to me. Um, so by the end of the first semester at community college, uh, I had earned a small merit scholarship in science and uh, I decided to try to go to grad school in plant breeding. So uh, when I lost my home situation in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, that definitely required a big change. I also tried to consciously make changes in around 2008, 2009, and that's what my album came out of. Uh, I'd recorded songs before. I'd you know, put out a demo on cassette tape, but that was the first album where I released it on CD. I distributed it to record stores through iTunes and other distribution networks. And that was a really big step for me. Um, I've struggled with depression my entire life. Uh, 2007 was a really rough year for me. And um, things sort of crystallized for me. And I realized that I really did need a big change. Uh, when I was walking home from uh, BART, which is the local Bay Area subway system, uh, late at night, and I realized that I was so depressed, yet also so angry, that if I'd gotten mugged at gunpoint, I would have tried to take the guy out with my bare hands, even though I knew that that would get me killed, um, because that I was just so, you know, like I said, depressed and angry at the same time. And I asked myself, you know, if you're not afraid to do something like that, why are you afraid to do art for a living or do music for a living or, you know, do any number of other smaller things that you've been trained to be uh, afraid to do? After that experience and really questioning myself about that, that's when I resolved to, you know, take more risks, no matter how much it makes my stomach uh, tie up in knots. And it does. Um, <laughs> I asked myself what I wanted to do before I die and, and, you know, kind of, crystallizing for myself what it is I really want to get out of life, what I want to leave behind. This resulted in taking a trip to the UK and Ireland, which really still is one of the highlights of my life. And uh, then right when I came back, I took up a producer on his uh, offer to record an album for me. So I just had to, you know, get over my worries about, you know, being considered too presumptuous and also my money worries and just ask some musicians I knew and find ways to, you know, barter or other ways to get the money together. I had a small amount of savings left from work and I knew I was heading into a period of poverty. Uh, so what I had to do is I had to get out, get over this lifelong feeling I've had of, oh, you have to do the more adult financially stable thing, which had always led to me deferring uh, creative work. And instead, I had to just trust that things were going to work out. You know, they largely did, or at least I don't think that the things I, the things that didn't, you know, work out were because of that. 
Uh, and, you know, so I have really no regrets about doing that. And um, do the act of doing it only illustrated to me, I mean, the only regret I had was that I hadn't done it earlier because it, once I did it and I did it successfully, uh, I was like, oh gosh, I could have been doing this, you know, since my, my late teens or early twenties. And I just spent all this time putting it off, uh, and listening to other people. So, you know, I've spent a lot of my past, a lot of my life regretting the past or worrying about the future. And, and it's, that's just an awful way to live because you're never really enjoying the present. And so while I'm intellectually aware of this problem, and I have been aware of that for decades, <laughs> You know, I still am working to change. There's a difference between knowing intellectually that that's what's going on and actually overcoming all the training that you've had uh, to, to defer your um, enjoyment in life and the idea that that's the adult thing to do. That's a major change I'm still trying to make. And, and um, you know, I'd like it to be something that comes naturally so that eventually I no longer have to push myself through, you know, through the the uncomfortable, you know, feelings of anxiety and, you know, literally getting knots. What are some of the practices you have faced throughout your journey that have been really ageist or even ableist for you? Uh, well, the, uh, the, there's a couple different things. Um, I tend to notice the ableism more than the ageism. It's not that the ageism doesn't exist. It definitely does. But, um, but I think even more because it affects people of all ages, maybe, uh, I, I noticed the ableism. Uh, so, you know, schools, I, I, I should say that, uh, you know, our concept of, of community college or college or university, you know, they definitely have a stereotype of what age the person is who attends those. And, uh, you know, that will adjust according to whether you're talking undergrad or grad, but still, you know, there is kind of a cap age that people are thinking about. So that's evident in the language that they use in their communications, not only with students, but to the outside world. So young as a synonym for student is common uh, in not just school materials, but also in materials uh, that are uh, released in regards to scholarships, in terms of mentoring, in terms of, um, you know, like professional societies for the sciences or for, you know, the humanities or whatever your professional society is and uh, other materials that are geared towards students. <clears throat> and uh, it's also uh, evident in the pace of the classes, although that I think is both ableist and ageist because even an abled uh, person of, you know, middle age or older, they're going to have some differences in terms of their energy level, in terms of how their memory is working, in terms of how they learn, uh, what their capacity is, you know, in terms of their um, stamina. I mean, it's not going to be across the board. It varies by person, but still, it's not going to be the same as when they were in, you know, their 20s. Um, so they sort of, sort of force everybody through this round hole, even though some of us are square pegs and the attitude is, you know, tough luck, that's the way the world is. Uh, rather than examining the system as a whole and asking uh, if what they're really interested in is helping everyone in society learn to the best of their ability and to reach their full potential. So, you know, unfortunately, decades of conservative attacks on, on public schooling have taken their toll. And what that this means is that even if schools have the political will to revisit how they do things, they're always struggling now to get the budget to do it. And uh, it takes a better teacher to student ratio. It takes more TAs to implement more flexible and, and inclusive pedagogical methods. For instance, you know, 
what's fairly typical in all schools, but you know, definitely typical in in the co community college I'm going to to is you know a sort of well you have these small tests and then you have these big tests and it's all done you know your grading is all done by scantron and uh that's a very quantized way of doing things and it's not and it's easy to game which means that there's that makes it actually easier for people to cheat um, but it punishes some of the people who are trying to do it honestly if they've got a disability or if due to age, they're not able to cram as much rotely memorized material in the time period that they're leaving. Whereas a portfolio system or a system that has more to do with oral examinations or some, you know, something more flexible, that requires a lot more staff time. And um, you know, there, are, there are teachers that are willing to do that, but you know, maybe don't have the time because they're kind of so overworked already. And then, of course, there's ones that, you know, they're not into it. They don't want to do that. But so, you know, the penny pinching always results in prioritizing what works best for the teachers in terms of reducing their hours. And again, I'm not trying to cap on teachers here. I think that the teachers are way too uh, overworked at pretty much all levels of our public schooling system. And, uh, but, but especially to, it, it puts the interests of administrators and, you know, top management over what's best for the students. So, you know, the American with Disabilities Act or the ADA, uh, that was passed in 1990. And yet most institutions and businesses in the U.S. are still not fully accessible. Uh, it has been 28 years to get their act together. And there's really just no good excuse, but it's still the case that so many of these institutions, even really major ones, uh, are not fully ADA uh, compliant. And uh, this is just the bare stuff, like making it possible for somebody using a wheelchair to get to their classes or to go to the restroom as easily and as conveniently as abled people do. Uh, and that's not even touching, you know, stuff that would be more supportive and is harder you know, maybe a little harder and uh, more effort to implement. You know, another example would be making sure that disabled people are include in active shooter, included in active shooter earthquake emergency drills. Uh, our school has had two emergency drills on days that I would happen to be on campus. And it was really clear to me that no one from, you know, no one who was behind managing the drill had educated teachers and staff as to how emergency evacuation protocols might differ for people with various disabilities. Um, then when there was a drill that was announced ahead of time, and I saw that it came from the campus police chief, I replied to him and he just, you know, kind of poo-pooed my whole response. It was clear to me that no disabled people were consulted. And of course, the able people have no idea what true accommodation would look like because they don't have, you know, even me as a disabled person, I know my needs, but I don't necessarily know the needs of somebody who's got autism. I don't necessarily know the needs of somebody who's deaf. You really need a, um, you need to involve disabled people in these things. Uh, particularly, they have an obligation, I think, to do it in, especially in public institutions because disabled people are approximately 20% of the population and they pay taxes too. And they need to, they need to have their voices heard. They need to be involved in these decisions. So. But, you know, the able administrations, they don't care. So, you know, this is one of the many reasons that, you know, we've seen in these, you know, calamitous fires in California and, and in other disasters that uh, a lot of the, the casualties were disabled people and or, you know, elderly people. Um, 
because abled people who are in positions of power are not thinking of disabled people in this planning. They don't involve them in the planning. And, uh, you know, it gets to the point where like, even at our school, and I've heard anecdotally from other people at other schools, there are signs in the school library saying, you know, to paraphrase it, you know, in case of fire, leave disabled people here at this spot. So the directions are actually to abandon disabled people. And that's just horrifying. And I, I bring this up in the context of school because of course, increasingly schools are having to have these emergency drills uh, because of active shooter situations and such. So um, there is what's called the Disabled Students Programs and Services, DSPS at my community college. They help a bit in trying to get accommodation at school, but you know, they sort of fall short. And again, anecdotally, I've heard from other, uh, there's a hashtag on Twitter right now called uh, hashtag things disabled people know. And somebody uh, said the basically the same thing I'm seeing he saying here, which is that, you know, they may help you with the bare minimum of, of accommodation, but they're not really advocating for you. They, they kind of drag their feet about it and act like you're lucky to get it and it's just really not satisfactory. So, you know, um, but when I moved from the Bay Area to Los Angeles again, and I'm emphasizing, you know, I grew up in the LA area, but having spent most of my adult years in the Bay Area, I got used to the fact, you know, Berkeley is the center of the independent living movement. It is where the independent living movement really started. So while they are far from perfect on, uh, accommodation. They're a lot better than a lot of places. And there's certainly, uh, people don't look at you weird if you bring up disability issues there. It's a bit of a culture shock coming back down to LA to see, even though it's a major metropolitan area, how different it is in that respect. So um, disability organizations up there tend to be a little more activist compared to what I'm finding in LA. And so I was kind of expecting DSPS to be advocates for us and strong advocates for disabled students. And um, really they just, they, they view their business as just to be there to manage the bureaucratic uh, means the school has put together to put, do the bare minimum of ADA and compliance. And sometimes, you know, they're not even good at that. So my experience has been that when I advocate strongly for my needs, when I call out ableism, I'm seen as the problem rather than uh, institutional ableism being seen as the problem. So uh, to give an example of the kind of thing that DSPS accommodation uh, looks like, it, it takes the form, at where I go anyway, uh, and for my disability, of uh, getting special furniture in the classroom if I need it. So there's some, course, some classes I've gone to where they have uh, the students sit in desks where it's like a plastic seat and to your right or your left, uh, they usually, and this is actually another sort of ableism or, or another bias in a way, actually most of those desks, they have the desk coming over from the right side, like the vast majority of them, it's rare to see one that's left. And so you're favoring right-handed people with that furniture too. It's a bad furniture choice for everybody, but for me, I can't fit into it. So uh, part of my accommodation is being able to uh, get a desk in there uh, but even that doesn't happen seamlessly. I had one semester where I spent like, there were several weeks in a row where the furniture would not be there. Uh, somebody would have stolen it to go somewhere else. And, you know, it was really a pain in the butt. And um, uh, the other, you know, kind of accommodation would be being tested in the disabled proctoring center, which is significant, you know, a significant walk across campus for me. And, uh, 
the idea is that I get, you know, I'm being watched like a hawk. In fact, I'm being videoed when I take tests, uh, you know, because God forbid I, you know, cheat, uh, you know, you're being treated as if you're more likely to cheat than other people somehow, because they don't video you in class, but they video you as a uh, disabled student. And um, for me also, you know, I have CPTSD, so uh, I use earplugs, but I also, it helps me to just be isolated and be somewhere else. And, you know, I was taking a test there one time, and that building is right on the quad of our uh, our community college, and they sometimes, you know, uh, have events there like the school band playing. <laughs> and that, that, that happened while I was trying to take a test. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and they're just kind of, again, tough luck about it, you know, so I'm actually being sent to sometimes to a place that's worse for me, uh, rather than better, and there's not a lot of flexibility around it. Um, but, you know, there's other ways that I really could use accommodation and I don't get it. So for the entire five years I've been going there part-time, uh, the science students have been in a uh, temporary arrangement. The building that the science classes used to be in has been condemned for earthquake uh, problems. And we are in these, you know, fancy looking, but still trailers basically on the corner of the campus. And so, uh, there are no lockers for me to put anything in. I always have to carry around what I need, and that includes like a, a cooler bag of medical ice packs, my backpack with my binders and my books and everything, and it's, it's really exhausting. Um, they do have some student areas to be kind of just within the last year or two, or I should say actually probably two or three years now, but they're first come first serve and sometimes they're absolutely packed. So, you know, I don't have a guaranteed ability to, to reduce the drag of that weight on me. And I don't use an electric wheelchair or a wheelchair at all, actually. So it's not like I can hang my stuff on a wheelchair and like use that to take the weight. It's all on me. So, um, I, you know, there's a couple other, I mean, certainly more things I can speak to. I don't know if you want me to take a break, because uh, that was a pretty long soliloquy there. <laughs> you know, uh, it is one form of diversity that is often left out of lists of diversity. You know, when they're offering um, fellowships or scholarships or trying to do a diversity hire, uh, Disability is often not mentioned, which is really too bad because uh, it is definitely one facet of uh, of um, of diversity, and it's something that cuts across many of the other groups, except for, of course, able people. So, for instance, you know, the experience of somebody who's uh, you know Latina and abled is going to be different than the experience of somebody who's Latina and disabled, and um, by glossing over disability in mentions and in programs that deal with diver diversity uh, and inclusion, it is sort of codifying ableism even more. So even as they're working on trying to get better at other things, and I'm not saying they're on top of that at all, um, <laughs> they, uh, they're still kind of codifying the, dis you know, the ableism and also ageism, honestly. So uh, the way I think about it in terms of these things, though, is that a lot of the kind of things that you deal with, you're saying, well, look, you know, if they just thought of these things when they were 
building the building or when they were planning the policy. And I think the same thing is true about other facets of diversity. I think that's why it's important for, you know, because what's being encoded is, you know, a enabled, rich, white, male, thin, you know, all cis, you know, cis heterosexual, all of these things that are being, that we get messages that this is the pinnacle, this is what normal is, this is what the standard size human is supposed to be like, this is what, you know, is the, the norm experience, and everybody else, you have to figure out a way to fit in this world that we've created for that person that we have in mind as being the ideal, and um, so that's true for disability, it's also true for other uh, facets of diversity. I think it's it's important for us not just to look at what we are facing, whether it's ableism, racism, ageism, but, you know, being aware and conscious that, you know, I might be facing racism, but, you know, a brother or sister who is, you know, having all these structures that are very ableist and preventing them, you know, from succeeding in a sense, you know, recognizing that and acknowledging it and kind of having it present in your own activism, I think is always a great way to go. But when it's not there, for instance, if you're fighting for racism, but you're not thinking about, you know, the woman who is also disabled and, you know, your objectives are not able to kind of help that person, then, you know, there's a problem. When we're able to discuss that and to accept it without just singly thinking about what you're facing, then I think this world in general, we would be a lot more progressive. Well, we're in a time right now where, you know, a lot of what was built up in civil society uh, is being uh, attacked and not just the bad things, but the good things. And I think if people who want to fight for civil rights and for human rights and for democracy uh, come out on top, uh, there's going to be a lot of um, restructuring what we had to try to prevent this kind of breakdown from happening again. And in the process of doing that, if you do not, if you're not educating yourself as to what other people are going through, and uh, not only you know, I mean, your best place to talk about what you personally go through, and it's best if you do a lot of listening to people who are from, you know, sectors, uh, you know, from communities and subcultures that you're not part of. But you also, once you've listened enough, hopefully to speak up and, and at least advocate for them a bit when they're not there, and then, you know, and elevate their voices. But to try to learn as much as you can, because when we are trying to rebuild from the rubble of of what is going on worldwide right now, if people are not fully educated to the types of bias and prejudice that not only go on in terms of interpersonal reaction, but are actually coded into our uh, infrastructure and our, you know, advertising and the stories we tell about each other and, you know, this whole system that we're part of then you will end up partially re when you rebuild if you have those biases and prejudices because you haven't done enough self-examination and education by listening to others 
then you're going to build in some of those biases into whatever you do that's new. And it's very likely that what will happen, uh, because it is both ableism and ageism is really prevalent, that, uh, that that will be rebuilt into whatever gets made. So, for instance, the city of Berkeley last night passed a, uh, an ordinance that will phase out all kinds of disposable foodware in the city of Berkeley. And overwhelmingly, I mean, I think that that's a good thing in general, except for they're completely ignoring that there's a sector of disabled people who who actually really need disposable plastic straws, uh, where it's like discriminatory for they could actually aspirate and die. You know, it's hard for them to drink and that sort of thing. It's not the majority of disabled people, but you can't say, well, it's such a small number of people. So we're going to ban it. And if they really want it, they can ask for it. You know, it, it, the, the people who are affected by that have been very vocal in trying to affect, in, in trying to fight this sort of uh, plastic straw ban stuff that's been really catching like wildfire. And that, I think, is a real example of like two progressive communities that, that are you know, one's sort of ignoring the other, you know, it's not that disabled people are saying, I don't care about the environment, let's spread as much plastic as possible. They're saying, we have a medical need for this. And it's not always practical or, or something that I can afford to do to bring my own straws with me to every place I go. Uh, so can you please, you know, while you're trying to cut down on plastic use, can you cut down on all these other uses that don't affect us medically, you know, that don't endanger our lives, but instead what's caught on is the plastic straw ban. And so the, the Berkeley thing that, that just passed last night is broader than that. It, it goes after plastic forks and spoons and things like that. And as far as I know, there's no issue there. They're, they're going to be uh, replacing those with the compostable forks and spoons and I don't think there's any issues that disabled people have that I've heard of so far with being able to use those but I did double check and like nobody had really spoken up well enough for uh, and this is again like I said Berkeley is like you know the center of the independent living movement so if they're ignoring disabled people when they say this uh, I'm just using this as an example of you know this is where the education needs to happen because if you're trying to build a better world uh, in the face of what's going on world right, worldwide right now, which is you know a lot of democracies breaking down and at the same time we have this climate change emergency, uh, it's not a better world if you're throwing disabled people under the bus on this. What are some of the skills you, you use to cope with a lot of the difficulties you've had and how did you remain so motivated? Um, well, I wish I could say that I had these amazing coping skills, but um, that's actually been a real deficit for me most of my life. Uh, I am getting a bit better with it, uh, at it with uh, age and practice, but um, I have to say, you know, it's not that I'm some amazing story of like, you know, being this disciplined driven person or anything like that. The number one motivator for me is is feeling like I don't have that many better choices then this is a way out. Um, you know, the the SSDI income is so low that if I did not have uh, people who were willing to let me have, you know, a room, uh, and that's why I had to leave the Bay Area, you know, I, like I didn't, not only could I not afford even the affordable housing on SSDI, 
but like I did not have anybody in my friends network who was willing to, you know, let me pay them what I could afford to pay them to live there, you know, so the only place I had that was in LA. And that's why I had to kind of pick up and, and move down there. Uh, but you know, it's the situation I'm in is not good for my health. It doesn't allow me to take care of myself. And it, it and I knew it was making me worse. So that becomes the motivator, because it's like, you know, nobody's coming to rescue me. The only person who's going to get me out of this is me. And, and so, you know, it may sound negative, but it really does help me keep going um, where previously in my life when I was younger and I had more options, you know, I might not have stuck at it so hard. You know, when, when the going got rough, I might've given up, you know, I might've done something else, but um, you know, I know I want to have a happier life again. I know I want to regain the financial ability to take care of my health. And, and I see uh, retraining as really the best way available to me to do that. And so even though I don't like having to go through lots of challenges I would have avoided when I was younger, such as <laughs> like I'm, I'm currently, you know, my degree is in art. And while I took lots of history and lots of languages, everything else that I was really doing a lot of was humanities. And math is definitely not my fort. So, you know, math is kind of unavoidable when you're taking science classes. Um, and it's made this very challenging for me, but it's the, it seems like the best way forward. So I just keep doing it. And, and, you know, that's been a real growth thing for me too, because uh, I know I'm not unique in this, but I was very much trained to view an F as an utter failure you know, at, or just failures in life that, you know, I was like viewing them as the end of the world, you know, not as something that you could, you know, just put in perspective and then move on, you know, or learn from. And so that's what I had to do to succeed at this. I mean, if I, if I was not, if I was working my rear off in these classes and yet the grade was not really showing the amount of effort that I'd put in, you know, then I would withdraw from the class and try again, you know, uh, and it, it's, it was humiliating the first time I did it, but, you know, I just had to go like, that's, what's got to happen. You know, I know that I'm again in a situation where, you know, GPA may not be important to me, but it's important to the people I have to apply to for grad school. So I have to make sure that stays high. And if that means that I have to withdraw and try again, then that's what's going to happen. And, you know, it means that I've, uh, especially at a community college where, you know, a lot of people are transferring out after two years to go to a four-year uh, institution. And I've been there at this community college for five years now, so everybody knows me. <laughs> because they're in and out while I'm still working there. And, you know, that's, I would have been humiliated about it, but it's just like, I just have to go like, you know, I have to, I'm here to get, I'm, I'm here to take care of business and that's what I'm doing. So anyway, uh, as a coping tool, I'd say Twitter has been really helpful. Uh, I got, I've always been very involved with social media. Uh, I first got on the internet in 1993. I was the first of my family or friends to with the exception of one or two programmers that I knew to be on the internet in any sense at all. And, uh, uh, I was always very into, you know, this, the social aspects of it. So it's, it's always been something that's, that I've been familiar with and have used, but I was uh, staying off Twitter for a while. Cause for some reason I had 
I think I had the misconception in the beginning that you had to have a cell phone to get it. And I didn't get my first cell phone until, you know, on purpose, I put off getting one until like 2004. So anyway, uh, I got on it really just before my album came out because I knew that I was going to need to promote my album. And I just figured I had to have a presence on as, you know, many big social media platforms as I could. And so I was, when I got on it, I was still in the Bay area. And then when I found out I would have to move back to LA, I was using Twitter to, you know, kind of get up to date on all the stuff I'd missed in the 25 or so years that I'd not lived there and to try to figure out, you know, equivalents to the kind of, um, cool things that were available to me in the Bay Area. And so it was just natural when I made this change from humanities to STEM that I would start following scientists and institutions on Twitter to try to find out, you know, about plant science and to find out the stuff that I knew I wasn't necessarily getting in school. Because in school, you know, I'm taking basic biology, you know, first year general biology, first year general chemistry, uh, it's very, um, you know, they're, they're giving you the basics and it's all really necessary, but it's not reflective of how science works on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I started getting that through um, Twitter, you know, by following these, uh, by following scientists and, you know, eventually grad students and industrial scientists and blah, blah, blah. So it's, you know, that's helped me network with grad students, academic, uh, you know, all these other scientists and it's and they've really provided some moral support and you know some reality checks when i'm sort of freaking out about one thing or another whether it's at the lab i'm volunteering at or whether it's at school and you know some of these folks have even provided letters of recommendation for my grad school applications you know and i i i frequently thank people on twitter and I still don't feel like, you know, I can thank them enough because it's made such a huge difference. I know my life would be very, my progress through school would be very different without it. So I would recommend Twitter to anybody who's interested in entering the sciences, but also, you know, really whatever field you're into, uh, it's useful to go and try to find people in that field and start following them. For all the listeners who are not sure where to start, I think that's such a practical place to start because it's free for one. And for two, I know you, you probably do have to put some work into, you know, tweeting and in interacting with people, but it just seems like the benefits are kind of limitless in a way. And I know when I looked at your Twitter page, I was like really in awe at how much you were engaging and posting. And I think for people who do not have a traditional support system, it just sounds like that would be such a great place to start. And especially with older adults who might be lonely and especially those who know how to navigate technology to that extent, I, I think Twitter would definitely be a great place for them to start. I think that's likely true. I mean, I don't, I'm not as of yet tied into a community on Twitter based on my age. Uh, there might be some, I just haven't run across it yet. But as far as the dis disabled community, it's been a real game changer for people because, you know, I can still get out of my house. I can still do things. I, um, you know, I definitely have bad days where I can't get out. But, you know, there are some folks who have really debilitating uh, conditions where they just cannot get out as much. And, um, 
it has really allowed them to, to, to speak to others and to listen to others and to form a sense of community. And particularly because, you know, uh, the definition of disability is, it varies from person to person, but I guess, you know, it's kind of changing a little bit, which is like a lot of stuff, you know, when somebody breaks their leg, when an able person breaks their leg, in the past, they have not viewed themselves as temporarily disabled, for instance. And the only reason they're starting to now is because they want to get the temporary disabled parking placard they can get in the state of California here, for instance. So, uh, but, you know, temporarily they are disabled and a lot of able people, their first wake up to like how ableist the infrastructure is, is when they have, you know, for some temporary condition, they're using a wheelchair and they find they can't go out to restaurants with their friends because the restaurant isn't accessible or they can't go, you know, they can't go to a certain building because there's no elevators or the elevators are like, not viewed as important, so they're not fixed on time. Uh, that's true of uh, public transit, or it's true of like if they want to take an Uber, you know. So uh, the definition of disability is changing, and so there are people like who have conditions that you know a lot of us in the dis in the more advocacy disabled community view as disability, but maybe that person themselves never saw themselves that way, and through talking to others you know, they realized, hey, part of the reason I didn't see myself this way was because I saw dis, dis, being disabled as less than, and I didn't want to identify that way. But, you know, by meeting other people online who are cl cl clearly and proudly saying, yes, I'm disabled. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's part of who I am and uh, it's not all of me and neither am I going to disavow it because you see it as less than, you know, that really changes their mind about how they feel about themselves. So I've actually watched people and seen people who, you know, were really new on Twitter and, you know, within a month, they're kind of like, wow, I am totally changing my opinions about, you know, my life and my disability and everything based on being able to talk to other disabled people. And, and I'm sure that's, you know, there's a lot of other communities I know that are finding community through Twitter. So I wouldn't call it, you know, I find it very useful, uh, there are things that maybe it's not as strong at as other ones, you know, I mean, uh, and there does definitely seem to be an age related fit to it in the sense that a lot of younger people seem to prefer, um, you know, Instagram and Snapchat and WhatsApp and things like that. that. That kind of, my impression is that at least with WhatsApp and things like that, it's really more about talking online to friends you already have, which is pretty insular, really. Um, but, you know, I, maybe I misunderstanding it. But I think I think the other thing that's important for me to slip in here is that it's not just me learning from scientists. I'm very vocal, probably dangerously so for my chances at getting into grad school. Um, about what my experience is like as a, you know, older non-traditional disabled student. And because of that vocal nature, you know, I have people who've told me, scientists who've told me, you know, like here's one that somebody said that's in, they're in my field. They're not just a plant scientist, but they're in my field, you know, and they said, you're among the select few who have opened my eyes to a need for education resources for those coming into plant breeding and plant sciences, sciences later in life. You know, and I feel blessed to have your influence. So it's not just a one-way thing. It's not just that I'm listening to 
other people, but by me talking about what my daily experience is or pointing out to people like, you know, that a conference or a what's called an REU, which is a research experience for un undergraduates, which that's an extremely important program and is meant to help uh, diversify the sciences. And more often than not, I find these programs ignore disability. They will list uh, gender, they will list race, they will list, uh, you know, ethnicity or, and, and they'll, and they'll list, um, sometimes they'll list LGBTQI, but they almost never list disability. And when they have pages that show their alumni, they don't show it. Uh, there's nobody obviously disabled. Let's put it that way. And of course, age doesn't enter into this at all. You know, the, 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 um, the language of these programs very often will use young inter interchangeably with students. So anyway, it, 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 those folks have, have gotten back to me and said that, you know, that following me on Twitter has helped open their eyes to some of this stuff. A lot of that, it goes back to being educated on different things. And for me, when I think of legacies, I think of being able to document how you're learning, what you're learning, comparisons, it's, it's being able to share your narratives. It's being able to make connections. And for me, you know, Twitter is kind of where we met. And just me seeing your level of passion, it kind of just made me realize that this is what our legacy podcast is about. Um, it's not about me hunting for the person who is the venture capital or the person who started this multi-million dollar business, a regular person who has their triumphs, not being where they want to be, have their struggles, have their trauma, have their losses, but also has their perspective on how they're able to improve. And even if you can't improve, the fact that you have a story to share and you have a narrative with these experiences, it's that's something that matters. And that's something that to me, it, it represents and encompasses what a legacy is. And you have, you've just had quite a few journeys and I've been able to make connections here, but I'm wondering what would you like other people to know about your challenges and your successes that you have faced in the past and even in the present? Well, you know, a lot of stuff right now is getting framed as sort of, you know, uh, boomers versus millennials, but, you know, I'm older Gen X and I was raised with the expectations of my parents' world, which is that we lived in a meritocracy and that you could work your way up from the mailroom if, you know, and if you worked hard and if you were loyal, loyal to your employer, you know, you would be regularly rewarded, your talents would be recognized and remunerated. Um, and so this is partly individual to me, I think, but you know, I've always had a pretty small social circle. So when this kind of job market and social safety net was being torn into shreds, and I really see that as happening, you know, about the time that Reagan, you know, came into power, that's when these things started getting really undermined. Um, you know, and I wasn't yet out of high school uh, when that happened. Uh, I didn't have enough people to do a reality check with. So I always saw the fact that things weren't working out for me the way that I'd been told that they would 
as something peculiar to me rather than seeing it as a trend. And so I did not have a realistic approach to work-life balance and, and my career aspirations. You know, I was, I was really trained for a world that was fast disappearing and I didn't even realize that it was disappearing for everyone, not just for me. So, uh, I mean, you know, I did realize some things, but I just was not really putting things together fast enough. Um, so, you know, I postponed my happiness over and over again. I would, I would submerge what I really wanted to do in life to my employer, to my parents, to, you know, what society said I should be doing, whatever, you know, I was, you know, I did it due to, you know, familial disapproval of me wanting to do art for a living. And, and then I was doing it in terms of my day jobs. And, uh, you know, I always thought if I just played the game as I'd been taught, you were supposed to play it, that, you know, it, it would come along in it. And by the time I realized this wasn't happening, I, you know, I'd really wasted a lot of the, the physical prime of my life. So, um, you know, it may be that most people don't need this advice now, because I really, my impression is that most young folks are much smarter about this. Uh, they did not get trained with what I got trained with in terms of, you know, a sort of uh, view of the world that was, you know, circa 1965 or whatever. So uh, they don't expect their employers to care about anybody but themselves and their shareholders. So, uh, But in case anybody does need to hear this, I would say don't put off what fulfills you. You know, I always thought that if I just worked harder at this or that job, I'd finally be able to put myself through art school and then I would finally be able to have guilt-free time doing creative endeavors and that never happened so um, the promised financial stability that i kept sacrificing myself for uh, never came no matter how much i was scrimping you know i was not going out to eat i was not going to films with my friends i was there was a lot of stuff that i was you know i didn't have a pet um, i just gave up a lot of stuff because i thought that i would you know eventually get this fulfillment from putting myself through art school and it didn't happen. So um, in the meantime, you know, I'd gone through from healthy and able to disabled and that put, put a limit on the scope of some of the things I I'd do. Uh, you know, I was thinking I was going to do these things later and some of the things that I had on that later list would have been a lot easier or even possible for me to do when I was fully abled and maybe not so possible now. So you know, as long as you're not, you're being ethical and you're not mistreating other people, you should prioritize what it is that fulfills you. And you should try that risky thing because um, you can always go back and do the non-risky thing later. You know, if it turns out the risky thing you want to do doesn't work out, you know, you always, you know, as long as, you, as long as you're still around anyway, you're always able to take the you know, sensible, quote unquote, adult way to do things, uh, you know, later. So uh, you always hope that you're going to live to a ripe old age and that you'll have your health when that happens. Uh, but we really don't know what's going to happen. So, you know, do what you want to do in life while you can do it. And it's 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 better to regret, you know, trying something and have regret that it didn't work out. I think that's probably a better kind of regret than to have the kind of regret that you never tried it. And you'll always wonder what would have happened if you had. What would you suggest other people do to overcome their fears and, you know, just get out there and, and start to, to plan what changes they are passionate to make in our world, in our society, for their own legacy? Well, um, <clears throat> well, there, there's 
there's, you know, there's what I would call a logical fear and illogical fears, you know, and the kind of stuff I was talking about trying to overcome is really the more sort of petty illogical fears. And so I do want to make a slight adjustment by saying, look, you know, you know, don't give in to your unfounded fears. So, you know, we live in a, a what I find to be a scary time right now. And I don't mean, you know, for the reasons that, you know, Fox News or whoever wants us to be afraid. I what what is making me afraid is that we live in a time of rising fascism. We live in a time of eroding democracy and, you know, all and all in the background to all that, you know, Mother Nature bats last. Climate change is the big issue underneath all that. And the more time we have to spend dealing with <clears throat> eroding democracy, uh, the less time we have to uh, put our, you know, concentration where it really needs to be in, in, in stemming uh, climate change. You know, um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, says we have to drastically cut down on carbon emissions by 2020 if we want a chance for our species to survive on this planet. And that means that's just one more year to get our, <laughs> get our you know, business together. Um, those I don't consider to be unfounded fears. And I don't recommend, you know, like kind of just ignoring things as a way of overcoming them. But, um, you know, read good journalistic sources, read fact checking and get involved in your local state and national politics to make sure you're being heard. But we need to nourish the body and soul while we're fighting to maintain our democracy. And a lot of the fears that make us afraid to go for what we want, those I consider to be unfounded or at least not to have, you know, be statistically common enough to be worth, you know, paying attention to. Um, that, that, you know, it's no, that what we're fearing will happen is no more likely than success is. Um, so while being active and involved about things, it's rational to be worried about. Um, we have to do some work to not be worried about those unfounded fears about what will happen uh, if we do what it is we want to do in life. You, you have to balance your work, family, yourself, your community, and the world as best you can. Uh, you know, make time for self-care, and that includes pursuing your passions as best you can. So as, um, as far as the suggestion, the way my journey to find something to retrain in started, you know, like I said, was making that list of skills. And, you know, do sort of an inventory of yourself. It can help illuminate what you're good at and also allow you to pick what fulfills you. Because as you see, you know, as you start making a list of these things, it'll be very clear to you which things you're eager to do more of and which ones, you know, just because you're good at something doesn't mean it's something you actually want to do a lot of. Um, and making these kind of inventory lists can help highlight that for you and allow you to sort of prioritize what it is that you do feel fulfilled by. Um, and that, I think, is a good start to trying to, to decide what changes to make in your life because it's one thing to sort of toss these things over in your head but you know the sort of stuff we do in our head is very cyclical it's kind of you know it's repetitive putting it down on a list allow it, it makes it real in a way and it makes you have to deal with your feelings of how excited you are when you see it on the paper in terms of something you want to do in the future and the ones that don't excite you you know then you can then you can know that and acknowledge that and, and, um, you know, do what you have to do to survive, but, you know, make plans to prioritize things that 
make you feel alive. Wow, that was really, really helpful. And I I really want to thank you for sharing so much insight today and just going through a lot of your experiences and having the courage to share that with me meant a lot to me and to our listeners. You made a lot of great connections between ageism and ableism through your own narratives. And you offered a real clear picture of how you overcame and how you redefined your own legacy and your place in this world. And I think that is having a huge impact. And, you know, like you said, it's it's not a one-way street. As much as you are impacting the people you come across, the people you socialize with, and the people who are listening to this podcast, it makes me feel good that you're out there and you're taking in a lot of the information that we have access to through social media and through other more traditional forms of education and you've really you've really contributed a lot to our legacy podcast and I definitely hope to speak with you again at some point in the future and you know you're always welcome to come back and engage with us here on the show thank you I do feel like I I I might have sloughed over a little bit of the ageism specifically um there definitely is that does definitely go on but for me, like the ableism is often so much greater that that may be what I focus on. So I don't want to downplay the fact that ageism comes into play here. And uh, I just want to make people, <laughs> I don't want to make people think that I didn't get, you know, that I wasn't talking enough about it and therefore it doesn't exist. It does exist. <laughs> you are completely right. As much as I would love to continue this conversation, hence me inviting you back at some point in the future. Um, Again, I want to thank you and um, our listeners really appreciated you being able to share your narratives with us today. Thanks very much.